welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunlight. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a live interview with Shiree Archie about his call to stand against racism. Then for our peace bucket, we hear about this week's UN vote on the United States blockade of Cuba. Later on, we get reflections on the recent unsuccessful effort to organize a union at the Amazon warehouse in Skodak. Uh, after that, Sina talks to EP from Science for Change about citizen science. Finally, Paul Grondel talks about the upcoming Telling the Truth event at the New York State Writers Institute. But first, here are the headlines. The Daily Gazette reports that Schenectady Mayor Gary McCarthy has vowed to veto any potential 2023 city budget that resembles the city council's latest budget proposals. The mayor and the council disagree over how much of the federal COVID relief funding and the city's fund reserve should be used to balance the budget. The council would also reduce property taxes by 1%, while the mayor's proposal would maintain the present tax levy. The board is also opposed to the mayor's proposals for increasing waste collection fees by $1 per week. A proposed water rate increase of $12.97 per year and a sewer rate increase of $25.24 per year. The Times Union reports that the state attorney general's office has served a grand jury subpoena on Rensselaer County Board of Elections, seeking absentee ballot documents that were handled last year's by various individuals, including County Operations Director Richard Christ and Jim Gordon, the county's director of Ferguson. Also named was Sarah McDermott, who the Time Union described as a GOP political operative who works for County Executive Steve McLaughlin, presently under indictment in a separate campaign finance fraud case. McDermott last year defeated Gwen Wright to win the Working Families Party line in the county executive race. The Attorney General's investigation is separate from a similar federal grand jury probe being handled by the FBI and United States Attorney's Office. That investigation led to the guilty plea of a former Troy City Councilwoman, Kimberly Ash McPherson, and the indictment two months ago of Jason Schofield, the county's Republican elections commissioner. Approximately 70 arts and cultural organizations in the greater capital region were awarded grants from the New York State Council on the arts totaling a little more than $5 million. Hundreds of General Electric workers marched in Schenectady Tuesday for fair wages that include a cost of living adjustment to meet the rise in inflation rates, better health care, and to stop GE from sending work overseas and invest in the plants the company already has in America. The union's contract with GE is up for renewal next year. Average gasoline prices in Albany have risen 1.8 cents per gallon in the last week, averaging $3.72 per gallon this week. Gas prices are up 24 cents from a year ago. The national average of average price of gasoline has fallen 9.3 cents per gallon in the last week, averaging $3.77 per gallon on Monday. 
A new study by climate groups showed that the average new single home built in New York State would save approximately $904 per year if built with a cold climate air source heat pump instead of a gas furnace or boiler. Savings would be higher if buildings opted for ground source heat pumps with an average yearly savings of $1,165 per home. The study looked at the life cycle costs of the systems, including initial insulation costs. That's it for headlines. Shiree Archie was profiled in a recent story in the Times Union for his Stand Against Racism campaign for the past eight years as a silent, relentless witness for racial justice. The 74-year-old Vietnam War veteran and former state worker stands alongside Madison Avenue, Lark Street, Delaware Avenue, and other busy thoroughfares, holding a three-foot-by-four-foot handmade sign that reads, Stand Against Racism. So good evening, Archie. Can you tell us about your Stand Against Racism efforts? Um, good evening. Uh, thank you for asking me. Uh, I've actually had to sign uh, for eight years, but the process of coming to something to do has gone on a little bit longer than that. Um, I, I started out walking like with uh, the people from the Peace Pagoda and standing with uh, Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace and attending rallies in, in Albany. And um, there came a point where I, uh, I was standing at a rally in, in Albany and it was a rally against the war, a small group of people. And it occurred to me as I was standing there at uh, Townsend Park, it occurred to me that uh, not many blocks from where we were standing, there was a war zone at Clinton Avenue and Henry Johnson Boulevard, and that no one seemed to be concerned about that war zone. And it was kind of at that moment that I made the decision that I had to concentrate more on the issues uh, that directly related to me. And that's when I started to focus on uh, issues around race and racism. Um, it took a little while to make the sign. It took a little while longer to decide to stand with the sign, um, but eventually uh, I was able to do that. And initially I stood for a year from uh, Juneteenth of 2014 to Juneteenth of 2015. And when I got to 2015, the question was, now, now what do you do? And the answer is, you just keep standing. And so uh, that's what I've been doing um, basically ever since. Is there you know, anything in particular, obviously, other than raising awareness of the issue that you hope to accomplish with this um, silent protest? The goal is simply to remind people, because I think that um, just like the folks who are standing there at Townsend uh, concerned about a war someplace else, that most of us are kind of walking around in this fog as relates to what's going on right here. And race and racism is a, is a day-to-day -day issue for me. And I need to remind people of that because a lot of us, too many of us think that um, it got better in the 60s and it's just been getting better every since. And the reality is uh, that's not true. So what's been some of the reaction that you've received from standing with your sign? So the majority of the responses are way in, in the positive territory. You know, hi, how are you? Thanks for being here. Um, the horn blow, the wave, um, and that's great. And then occasionally, and more often than I would like to uh, see happen, there's the real negative remark uh, that I won't even say on the radio just for the sake of not saying it. But 
the reality for me is that on the one hand, if somebody blows the horn and says hi, I know what they're thinking. If someone drives by and calls me a name, I know what they're thinking. What I don't know is what are those other folks thinking? Um, the ones who drive by and look and look away the, or, or don't look at all, I don't know what they're thinking. Prior to 2016, I would have said that most of those people were leaning in my direction. The election of 2016 said most of those people were not leaning in my direction. And that's where we are now. That leaning has become a huge divide. And, um, and for me, that, that divide is very concerning. You know, many, I guess, white people, you know, don't seem to grasp the understanding about how systemic, you know, racism remains, um, you know, in, in America. You know, how do you think, like, you know, um, the Black Lives Matter movement has, you know, impacted upon people's, you know, awareness of, of, of racism? And has that really forced any, you know, changes in the general population? So I, I think I'll say it this way: when the when the Black Lives Matter movement kind of blossomed, and right after George Floyd and all the activity that was related to that, there was a building near where I work that put up a huge banner that said "Black Lives Matter," huge banner. A couple of weeks, and the wind kind of blew it, and it was kind of hanging there listlessly, but it was still hanging there. This big banner. Fast forward six months and the banner comes down and now we have an eight and a half, well, a, a sign about the size of my sign, lawn sign, sitting in front of their building, also saying Black Lives Matter. Fast forward six months, eight months, a year. Now there's a small eight and a half by 11 sign in their window that says Black Lives Matter. So my question would be, which of those banners actually represents how that organization feels about Black lives and the significance of Black lives? Because if size matters, and it, we all know that it does, one of those signs is not telling the truth. Um, so when you talk about systemic racism, this organization's response to the activity related to George Floyd was to throw up a banner to deflect whatever criticism they might have encountered and weather the storm. And then you don't need the banner, you just need a sign, then you don't need a sign, you just need a small sign and after a while the, the small sign will disappear. Um, I don't know if that quite answers the question, but I think that's a picture story for me of what's happened over the years. Something happens, a huge event, someone, Trayvon Martin, the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery. These things happen. There's a sudden response to that by all segments of the population. And that that response dwindles over time until you just have a guy like me standing on a sign on a corner with a sign that says stand against racism. And most folks don't really even understand why I'm, why I'm still standing there. If people wanted to join um, in your efforts of raising awareness against racism, how, how would you suggest that they can do that? Or how could they have their own silent protest? Um, I often think gathering in a space together is, is a good thing. I 
do it by myself because I, I find that it's difficult to uh, know who's going to show up and who's not going to show up depending on, on what's going on. But the truth is, if you step right outside your door in your neighborhood with a sign that said, whatever, that would be the start. You don't have to come to where I am. You don't have to come to some huge rally. If you really believe it, you know, step out, step right outside your door in your neighborhood with a sign that says, help me. I'm, I'm lost in, in racist water. Help me get out. So we only have about two minutes left, but, but I understand one of the um, people who inspired your own activism was uh, Jun Yasudo, uh, the Buddhist monk uh, who's with the Peace Pagoda. You know, what inspiration did you take, you know, from her? Just the reality of how dedicated she is to what she does. If she hasn't walked a million miles, I don't know that she's walked one. But she continues to do that. And uh, and she'll say to me in, in times that we've talked, Archie, just don't talk, just keep walking. And so for her, walking is a spiritual practice. Every step she takes is like a prayer. For me, standing on the corner is kind of my spiritual practice. I can stand there quietly with the sign. If people say something, that's fine. If they don't say something, that's okay too. But that's my commitment. I don't, I don't have to talk about it. The sign says what I need to say. And the, the thing about the sign is that it has only one side. So when you read the message, you're also looking at me. So that's... Um, that's kind of my guide from Jensen. It's like, you gotta be in it, you know? There's no, and she's, she's, a, she's a hard taskmaster, but she's dedicated to, to um, anti-war, anti-nuclear. She's, that's her, she's dedicated to that. And she'll walk anywhere to, in support of that. It appears that we're out of time. Archie, you wanna thank you for, for coming. I, I don't imagine you have a website or anything. We, people could do out. Oh yeah. I've they got do. a website. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's brand new and we're still working on it. It's uh, at HTTPS www.standagainstracism.info. It's a work in progress, but it answers those questions. How can I help? What can I do? Well, Archie, thank you very much um, for joining us today and, and good luck in your efforts. Thank you. I appreciate being asked. Okay. See you guys next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Up next, the United Nations will shortly hold its annual vote on the U.S. blockade of Cuba. There are local protests in the Capitol District, as well as a, ma a major rally in New York City on Saturday, October 29th. John Flanders of Albany, Cuba Solidarity talks with Mark in this week's Peace Bucket. We're talking today with John Flanders of Albany Cuba Solidarity. Um, this is a, a, a big week for efforts to focus attention on the need for the U.S. to end its uh, blockade on Cuba. Uh, on Monday, the uh, Bethlehem Neighbors of Peace and others, as part of their uh, weekly vigil at, uh, I guess, Four Corners in Del Mar, um, had a vigil uh, for it. But this uh, Saturday, there's a rally sponsored by a number of different groups down in New York City. I understand John's to be attending. So, so John, why are groups mobilizing this week to focus attention on the ending of the blockade in Cuba? Well, because uh, the, the annual vote 
which has happened something like 30 times so far of the uh, by the UN against the blockade is going uh, the vote is going to take place and it, it happens once a year overwhelmingly the world has rejected the blockade and Cuba wants to keep keep that momentum going now, is there anyone besides United States? And I, I know Israel usually votes with the United States on these type of things. But are there any other countries that, uh, in fact, vote uh, to support the United States continuing the blockade? Well, there are a number of countries abstain. I don't have a list of them right handy right now, but uh, um, I would regard an abstention as a no vote. And this year, this year, the European Union will probably be under pressure to support the United States more than usual because of the conflict in Ukraine. Now, you know, President Obama, during his administration, um, you know, did, you know, try to ease, you know, somewhat the uh, tensions between the United States and, and Cuba. Trump obviously reversed that. Um, you know, how is, has Biden been on the issue of relations with uh, Cuba? Biden has been pretty terrible, actually. Um, he's basically doubled down on the Trump initiatives. Recently, because he's worried about the congressional elections, he's eased up a little bit. But um, one thing he could do, which would be really, he he could do personally, would be to lift the inclusion of Cuba on the list of state sponsors of terrorism. And according to the uh, UN ambassador from, for, for, from Cuba, the continued inclusion of Cuba on the list of state sponsors of terrorism has worsened the dissuasive and intimidating impact of the blockade and made it more difficult for the country to engage in international trade and conduct of financial operations. And Biden could do this simply by him, himself. He doesn't have to get Congress, congressional support. Trump Trump made this a parting gift to Cuba on his way out the door. And uh, so this is something that Biden could do, has refused to do so far. So how is, you know, Cuba, you know, continuing to... I don't know. How, how's their economy? How's their humanitarian aid? How are things, you know, progressing in Cuba? And, and I know that Cuba, you know, obviously paid a lot of attention to the the hurricane that uh, hit Florida a couple of weeks ago, but Cuba was also hit uh, during that as well. You know, how, how is Cuba doing these days? Well, Cuba is, is functioning basically <clears throat> On a very limited uh, budget of because of the blockade, and <clears throat> things are pretty di difficult in Cuba. The reports I've heard that that it's much more difficult than it was during the period of uh, the Obama relaxation of tensions. So, <clears throat> for example, tourism from the United States has been restricted, and now with the European Union being under stress, the the tourists from, from Europe are not coming in the in the numbers that they did before, and Cuba relies on tourism specifically for hard currency, as as people who've been to Cuba know. 
So <clears throat> it's, it's the situation on the island right now is very difficult. Now, has, as, as Congress, you know, especially now the Democrats, at least for a few more months, have control of the, both houses, has the House of Representatives ever, you know, itself addressed the issue of whether or not the United States should be continuing this blockade? I mean, how long has a blockade been going on? Is it what, 50, it's been going 60? on for 60 years, mm -hmm. and no, Congress has not made a move to relent at all. Even even the prog the progressive members of Congress, <clears throat> the liberal Democrats have made certain resolutions, put forward certain resolutions to lift the uh, lift the uh, sanctions on travel, particularly, but has, they have not. Nothing has been passed. <clears throat> so, is there any hope moving forward? I mean, how does you know? the United States finally come to grips with, uh, you know, Fidel Castro, you know, deceased, no longer president. Um, the, you know, country continues. How does the, how, how's the United States ever going to come to grips with the reality that, that Cuba exists and, you know, that we shouldn't be punishing them? Well, I mean, this creates enormous problems for the U.S. diplomacy in Latin America, particularly and in the Caribbean, because the sympathy for Cuba is very widespread in, the, in these areas, particularly. Um, but the United States hasn't relented significantly so far. <clears throat> what can people do if they are interested in, um, you know, getting the blockade, you know, lifted and trying to normalize, you know, the relations between Cuba and the United States? Well, right right now, there's going to be a ma major protest in New York City on the 29th of October, mar a march to the uh, United Nations during the discussion and debate, before the discussion and the debate opens up, which, which should be significant, um, and people could join that, and that, that's the, the biggest thing they could do right now. Where is the American business community on this? Usually they're always, you know, chopping at the bit to get more markets to sell into. Have they been pushing to, to lift the blockade? Well, certain elements of the business community have. Farmers, for example, who would like to sell, sell apples to Cuba um, would like to see that market open up. And Cuba does import a lot of food. Which is a is a is a problem for the revolution because the revolution has made education free to everyone through college. As a result, I think it's 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 had a negative impact on agricultural production in the sense that people would rather not become farmers in Cuba. Um, this is this is an issue that they're going to have grappling with right now. Have any of our local Congress people, you know, spoken out on the issue of the blockade? Like not Malcolm. that I'm aware. Hmm. The support has come from the from the radical parties, like the Green Party and the socialist groups. Hmm. You mentioned the European Union. You know, trade or at least the tourist trade from Europe is down. But you know, what is the European Union uh, trying to do about the blockade? Well, historically, they've been opposed to it 
by abstention, if 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 not a vote per se, but aside from that, they you know basically the blockade, <clears throat> the way it functions, it it limits the it's it says the U.S. law says that if if a, a manufactured item has either any any percentage of like ten percent of U.S. material in it, it can't be uh, sold to Cuba. As a result, Cuba had to make, create their own ventilators during the COVID crisis, and they, of course, also they also invented a number of vaccines, which the WHO has dragged its feet on, recognizing their efficacy. That's another issue, of course. So we've been talking with John Flanders, Albany, Cuba Solidarity. If people want to get in touch with Albany, Cuba Solidarity, how best can they do that? Well, we have an email address, um, Albany, Cuba, Albany, Cuba Solidarity at gmail.com. One word, all run together. Well, thank and... you. Well, thank you very much. And this has been Mark Dunley uh, for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. So this Saturday, October 29th, is going to be a very busy day in New York City besides the uh, rally on the uh, stop the uh, American blockade of Cuba. It's also the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Sandy, and there's been a whole week of demonstrations, people getting arrested, and they're going to uh, have a major event on uh, this Saturday as well. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunley. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. The Amazon warehouse in Skodak, New York, did not get enough votes in the last week's election to unionize. To reflect on the efforts to unionize, we invited Heather Goodall back into our show. Welcome, Heather Goodall, to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You've been on Thank the show you. before. You are one of the lead organizers for the unionization of the ALB-1 Amazon warehouse in Skodak, New York. And last mm -hmm. week, there were not enough votes to unionize workers at your facility. Where were you when you heard this news, and how have you been processing it? I was actually in the room. Um, when we, they were doing the counting. So I knew. So I kind of went in a little prepared because of the conditions of the warehouse during the campaign and in the election. I, you know, had really considered where we were and what we needed to do. So I kind of, I knew when I was in the room when they were counting. So you said conditions of warehouse during the campaign and election. Can you elaborate on that? So part of the objections that we have filed were violations of the NLRA, several Section 7, 
violations, you know, up to and including calling the police on me, um, you know, writing me up, and then captive audience meetings, using suggestive phrasing and coercion to distort, you know, the campaign. There was workers who came forward to say that they felt pressured to vote no. Um, There's some that say they regretted voting no, uh, but they thought that they would lose their benefits. So they... Amazon was very aggressive in its anti-union campaign, and it really challenged the workers and left them little to no opportunity to actually cast a vote of their own without undue influence. Although Alvon failed to vote for unionization, the work that you've been doing has been a great motivator for other warehouses to organize from some of the things that you were just mentioning, what lessons can be taken away from this to help other maybe future efforts or other warehouses to unionize? So I think that the biggest lesson is to, before, you know, the election, um, we would have done a little bit more campaigning to ensure that when workers were faced with you know, the anti-union propaganda and the vote no signs and, you know, a lot of the tactics that they were maybe a little bit better prepared and to be strong and speaking out about your rights and the fact that Amazon is violating it. So just, you know, maybe creating a little bit more security in the workers so that when they're faced with the anti-union, they're not as intimidated because it was a culture of intimidation. That was our biggest challenge was the, um, the fear that was created. So how do you better prepare workers to fight against that fear? That's probably the, the key here. Um, and just maybe building a, a solid foundation to fight against that fear. And there is at least one other Amazon warehouse unionization effort happening right now. Could you talk about what other unionization efforts are to watch out for at the moment? Which which other unionization effort are you referring to? I believe there's one in California that I know of. Is there, I'm not uh, sure if there are more. Um, actually, um, I, I can speak with, some certainty that I believe that petition was withdrawn. So mm-hmm. we're trying to focus on how to, um, you know, to kind of sustain what I was just referring to as that strength and unity during the campaign, because the um, things that we saw at ALB1 when it came to the union busting was far beyond the scope of anything we could have anticipated up to and including the retaliation and discrimination against workers specifically with disability, which is something I've been, you know, very vocal about and is part of our objections. So I'm not sure that we are, we are going to be continuing any other campaigns as of right now, but of course we'll see how the objections at ALB1 go. So what is that process? You're filing objections right now and uh, is there a time process? Where, where are you in that process? And, and could you just give us a little more of an insight in what that means? So um, we did file the objections. So now um, I believe we have a week um, to present the evidence to support those um, objections. 
And we have had several workers on our committee, myself, um, signing statements and coming forward. So we do believe that we have enough evidence to support the objections. And that, I believe they said, takes about a week, um, and then we'll know more. Who's overseeing that process? Our attorney. So, of course, Seth Goldstein is a huge part of this. So Seth Goldstein is part of our legal counsel, and then Ritu Singla is our other attorney um, who has filed the objections on our behalf. So you were one of the leaders in this organizing effort. You were not alone in the this unionization of Albuan. Could you talk about some of the people that you worked with and what that collaboration looked like? Oh, I would love to. Thank you so much for that question. So uh, we built an amazing foundation. We had Kim Lane, who was my right-hand girl. Um, She was really connected well with the workers. She was there during the entire campaign. Um, We have Tia, and Tia was another huge campaign um, manager. She did a great job in connecting again with the workers and setting up the meetings. So we have Kim and we have Tia. Kevin Hogan was another huge supporter. Um, Angel came on board at the end. Uh, this amazing young up-and-coming um, Sarah Chandry. She's only 18 years old, and you had to see her at this rally and see her talk and see her walking through the warehouse, hanging up signs and really standing her ground. So we have, you know, Sarah... Um, we have another Kevin Quinn, um, he's actually a veteran. Um, he was part of the board and, um, he was standing out in front, connecting with workers, passing out literature. Um, and of course the DSA, the, um, the DSA, Julian, um, you know, we had Sam in the warehouse. They were an incredible part of our journey. And without them, we probably wouldn't have made it this far. So in addition to the committee members, we also had the DSA um, and people in our community that also supported us on our rallies, hosting events. So we definitely want to send a big shout out to the DSA um, and all of their support in this campaign. So we And I had another girl, Vanessa. She lives in Albany, so she came on board. She actually... Um, <laughs> Her boyfriend, uh, for the for a while, he was kind of on the fence, and we were trying to convince him. And she finally, you know, they walked in in the tent to vote, and and the smiles on their faces, and to see them empowered was was amazing. So we saw a lot of empowerment as well within our our workers and our team together. So so yeah, there was an amazing group of people that we all worked together. It was great. Quite a range of people and ages and, yeah. and, and experiences, which is a strength, right? Oh, it was great. Yeah. We had all different walks of life. That's the wonderful thing is there's a lot of diversity at Amazon and at ALB1, you know, it's fantastic to work with such a diverse group of people. And I love that, you know, that that is the one thing that they do bring to the table is this incredible diversity. And in our last minute, all of this energy of all the people who you just mentioned, where does that energy go to now other than the file objections? Um, you know, where that goes is we're going to continue to see that leadership 
at ALB1, those leaders that stepped up as, you know, the committee and, um, you know, supporting the campaign. And they will continue to demonstrate that leadership in supporting coworkers, um, you know, collective action. We still have the ability to support each other and, you know, stand for change and to continue to see change. So that leadership and that we've grown to see in each other will not stop. That's for sure. Heather Goodall, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Well, thank you so much. So union organizing efforts are seldom easy, especially with the big corporations who can hire outside firms to really intimidate um, uh, the workers, especially as you get close to the vote. Uh, we'll be continuing to cover other organizing efforts as well as Amazon in the future. We have previous interviews with Heather Goodall, uh, in which he spoke about some of the harms that workers faced at the Amazon warehouses. You can check out mediasanctuary.org, search button top right. For some, the sciences and arts are inaccessible because they can feel intimidating or confined to certain spaces. Science for Change breaks down these barriers for a new approach to the arts and sciences. And they joined us today in the studio. So a friend of Branda Miller is joining us in the studio today. So hello, EP. Could you please introduce who you are and why you are here in Troy? I'm EP. My real name is Isidora Fernandez. I'm from Chile. And... A few months ago, I went to this amazing conference that's called Femme Meeting. It's a Women in Science and Arts. And I met Brenda and Ali. Ali West. Ali West, yeah. And they invited me here just to get to know what's happening here in Troy. And I'm really, really amazed. It's amazing what all the things you have here, the sanctuary, the, the nature's lab, everything. I work in this company that's called Science for Change. We're really similar, so I came here just to get to know you and think about all the things we can do together. Yeah. Okay, so Science for Change. What is it and what exactly were you implying that our organizations are so alike? Well, um, Science for Change is a company that works with citizen science. We tackle really different topics, uh, health, environmental justice, a lot of gender issues, and everything we work at through citizen science that is this new way of approaching science and, and make it closer and less intimidating to the whole community, the whole citizenship, everywhere. We're based in Barcelona, but we work we work in Africa, we work in America, in South America, and all over Europe. That's our, where we're based. But every time is a different project. We already have 11 European projects and some Spanish ones. But we're trying to play a little more with art, and that's my job inside Citizen Science Projects. Uh, to to look how art can be a tool for for science and not the other way around and making it not intimidating because art and science share this problem that they seem very intimidating to people. 
So art is also intimidating. I was I was about to ask maybe is art the solution to <laughs> making science less intimidating? What are some of the intimidating factors that you find people have with arts and sciences? That they're a little critical. Sometimes you don't know what you're seeing, what you're watching. Many times when you ask, I, we work a lot with young girls. We work a lot on STEAM projects with an A in between. And there's many studies that show that if a girl don't get interest in science by the time she's 12, she's not going to study science or art. For me, it's because science has this face of being white men, old, with a white coat and doing difficult stuff. But science can be planting something in your backyard and watching it grow and trying different stuff. And that's also science. That's the base of science. So art has the same problem that we can uh, talk in really difficult language and people get intimidated. But art can be playing something on your piano or playing something with your hands in the air. I don't know. Everything could be art in a way. So that's using this same problem. You can fix both of them. So as I heard it, there was one lack of representation and also a misunderstanding of what exactly is the sciences and what are the arts. Exactly. Yeah. So how are you addressing that with your organization? We have these uh, workshops we do in, in different science museums and also in other spaces, but mainly in science museums in Spain, that we don't say that they are science or we don't say that they are art. And kids go into this and they experiment and they get to know what smells are, not only by their nose, but also by their eyes, because we transform some scents into paintings and then those paintings uh, we use them to make a collaborative art work and then we we use so this is crazy we use some 3d glasses those red and old school red and blue mm -hmm. that kids don't know what they are oh <laughs> they think that 3d glasses are like uh, vr glasses mm -hmm. and we shoot some lightning and all this painting becomes 3D and it's a way to show them that smells are invisible but they flow through the air and they start being amazed. You, you should look at the faces. They go crazy about it. And all of this workshop is like the narrative of it is from the woman who invented this, the distilled process, that's Maria, uh, from Egypt, from the second century. And she did science, and she did art, and she was a woman, and she was killed. So we join all of this together through her, her, her story. What's amazing to me is that little girls are not so focused on what they learn about uh, science, about the steel process, about um, smells. They're amazed that a woman could do that. Mm. in the second century. And yeah, it is amazing that they, they didn't think they could do stuff. And they are really inspired to make new things. Uh, it's fun. It's fun to watch them trust themselves.
It is interesting how an Egyptian woman began the distilling process and now our representation of perfumes is perhaps like a white French man yeah. in like this very <clears throat> white-walled space with these... Completely. Uh, <laughs> completely. And the only thing women can do in the smell world now is be the model of the campaign. Mm-hmm. And the distilled process was made by a woman. It's it's crazy, yeah. So how are things changing now through the work that you're doing, through yeah. the youth that you are inspiring? How do you see this trajectory being put back on the right course of representing who are the actual founders and who can be in these roles? Science for Change was founded by Rosa Arias, my boss, and a dear, dear friend. She did something that for us is very amazing that at some point she stopped putting words on the mouth of citizens. She just made the methodology and people said what the project should be about. And that's how you get people engaged. Because if you tell them we're doing a project on how paintings are polluted and something. Uh, they're not going to be interested. But if you tell them that we're doing a project about whatever you want and whatever you need as a collective neighborhood citizens, they start getting engaged and they start going to the meetings and you just have to give them the space and the tools and they're going to make the project. We're just there. We do these custom-made workshops for them to develop the project, for them to design every step of the project. How are they collecting data? How are they gonna analyze the data? That's what differentiates our methodology that other citizen science methodologies that just use citizens as data. That's very against how we do things. For a citizen science project to be successful has to be interesting to citizens. Will there be a future collaboration between the Sanctuaries Nature Lab and Science for Change, maybe? For sure, for sure. There's no doubt about it. Whatever you need, like, that's what we do, custom-made science. Well, we are so looking forward to having you back in the studio and some future point and to get much deeper into what we've been talking about. Thank you so much for coming to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been great. So Isadora, also known as ZP, is working on many interesting projects that we, Rosina, didn't have time to get to today, including an air pollution project called Odor Collect. And for our final segment, we focus on an upcoming event called Telling the Truth at the New York State Writers Institute. The two panels focus on truth in media and politics and disinformation. On Friday, October 28th, is the fourth edition of Telling the Truth. Paul Grondel, the director of the New York State Writers Institute, will be moderating one of the talks, and he joins us now on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Welcome. Thank you, Sina. It's nice to be with you. So in its fourth year, how did Telling the Truth series, how was it conceived, and what does it entail? 
Yeah, so this is the fourth edition, as you mentioned, and we've had previous editions. Uh, when I came in 2017, the second edition was really in response to the election of, of Donald Trump, his calls for the enemy of the people, attacks on the press, um, a, a lot of effort to undermine the First Amendment. Then uh, during COVID, we uh, did a whole series of taped conversations about political tribalism and toxic divisions in our political landscape. And we wanted this fourth edition now after the January 6th insurrection. And what we see is, uh, and all of us, I think, agree on ongoing threats to democracy from, uh, you know, trying to decide uh, what is the truth and, and who is, you know, who has the truth. And we all need to be better consumers of information on all platforms. So anyway, we're bringing together some really talented authors, journalists, um, a woman who's created an organization that's a watchdog against lies and misinformation in advertising. And, uh, you know, it's uh, going to be a deep conversation. And sometimes people don't agree on all these issues, of course, but our point is to foster dialogue and to get people thinking about who we are as a, as a as a country and and how democracy can move forward. You mentioned that Donald Trump had a big part in the conception of this series. And with his presidential candidacy came the reawakening of the term Lugepresse and just saying that the press is, is lying. Is that where it started? What has been the evolution of the mistrust? I think it stems in a lot of ways from kind of the Wild West atmosphere of social media. We're now probably in our, into our second decade where people who've been trained uh, with ethics and rules of journalism and verifying information and getting multiple sources, that doesn't really you know, have currency on, on the web and on social media where anyone could be anyone. And then people learned how to create propaganda and misinformation, obviously tampered with our election in 2016 and, and the current midterm elections. You see there's a lot of uh, um, propaganda and bad things happening uh, online. So I think the boom of, of online and the explosion of people who are all of a sudden, you know, producers and, and uh, publishers and, and heads of new content, that's only part of it, though. I think there was a deep-seated distrust between the right and the left that uh, Trump understood how to manipulate and to to fan and, and uh, to inflame uh, kind of our, our worst our worst elements of, of the national consciousness. So we really want to bring together people who've been looking at this, studying this, writing about it, um, to talk about it, because I think, you know, we need to at least listen to each other, even though we're so far apart. You know, I mean, uh, I think it was a wake up call when everyone saw that that mob storming the Capitol. And um, some people have this fear in the sense that that that's really kind of represents the state of our union right now. And we want to talk about that. And we think these are really uh, responsible, brilliant, um, well-versed, deeply, uh, you know, researched, and people in the trenches uh, who can talk about these issues. And so we invite the public to come, and there's Q&A sessions uh, after each one. And, um, you know, we've been able to have a civil dialogue. You know, unfortunately, a lot of um, political conversation is very heated and, and um, 
angry and a lot of shouting and recrimination. We we try to hold these without all of that as a way of of uh, at least um, trying to talk about these issues in a, in a calm, rational manner. With the rise of social media, there's also been this push for more immediacy in reporting and these sound bites and these reactions. Has that fueled this this shortened timeline that puts the deep research at risk and maybe leaves more opportunity for mistakes in reporting and fueling mistrust? I think you, you're onto something. I mean, I been a journalist for 40 years, newspapers, and uh, when we started, it was, you know, we worked for the uh, paper the next morning. Now it's it's nonstop. I mean, news is happening in nanoseconds. You can go on certainly Twitter or other platforms, and, and it's just constant. And uh, yeah, uh, I'd rather be right than be first, but there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, interest in being first and making a splash. And uh, the people that we have on, for instance, Brian Stelter, longtime uh, host of the show, Reliable Sources on CNN. He's also been a media critic and written for the New York Times. He wrote this book called Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. So we think we also have to look at, at very large corporate players um, in the space, especially Fox News, who um, you know don't have the same standard of truth-telling that we've expected from our media in the past. And then you're exactly right. It's so fast, the news cycle. And, you know, people are going for clicks, people are going for a lot of followers, and, you know, Facebook is a perfect example. They found in their algorithm that hate and anger, you know, makes people spend longer on their platforms, which drives their advertising. So they have a vested interest in getting people really mad and yelling and shouting over each other. Um, That's good for business, and I think you see that on on both sides. You know, it's, it's the way CNN was going recently in the way that Fox has been from the inception. And in this time of distortion of truth, how can we teach ourselves some tips for media literacy? That's that's a good point. I mean, there's so much coming at us so fast. First thing is to be skeptical. Uh, you know, the bumper stickers that have been around since the 60s question authority. You should question everything that comes across your phone, your tablet, your device, your laptop. You know, just because it comes uh, from a social media platform, you shouldn't immediately accept it as the truth. You should look at the source. You should look at other sources. You should know the bias of every source. Every source has a bias. Every single publication has an inherent bias. This notion of objective news that used to teach in journalism, objectivity, was never really real. You know, it's what we strove for. We tried to get all sides and points of view, but everyone has a life experience. Everyone has grew up a certain way. And and you have to accept that and realize that. I mean, you look at the New York Times versus the New York Post. You know, neither of them are wholly objective. But I, I trust the values, the quality the ethics and the professionalism of the journalists at the New York Times more than I do at the New York Post. And I've had friends who work for both. It's it's kind of a culture. Um, but there's the, the days of thinking you could play it straight down the middle and be entirely objective. You know, that that's sort of been disproven a long time ago. But with that said, you have to 
check your sources. You have to read multiple sources. This is why I read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal each day. Very different perspectives. Um, and I think you've got to filter them both a little bit. And you could go down the line with all the other sites or, or news sources that, that people read. But we work with students, too, here at the Writers Institute and, and talking about this. You know, look at the source. Where is this coming from? Ask tough questions. Be critical. Be a critical thinker. But as we you only get have about, before, it's, we only have it's about so 30 seconds left. Sorry yes. to cut you off. I'm sorry. But I want to make sure that we get in that information for the Friday event. Exactly. Two panels. We have Truth in Media at 5.30 and Politics and Disinformation at 7 p.m. What should we know about these panels? So the first panel is Brian Stelter and Nandini Jami. The second panel is Devlin Barrett and Jonathan Lemire. The moderator of the second panel will be Rosemary Armeo, who's well-known as a journalist and a, a watchdog. Um, they are free and open to the public. They're at Page Hall on the downtown New Albany campus, 135 Western Avenue. You can learn everything you need to know at our website, nyswritersinstitute.org. We hope that you will join us and, and make your voice heard as well and add your voice to this conversation. Paul Grondel, it's been a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Zena. I appreciate it. So I don't know if Paul considers cable television as social media, um, but the only cable station that comes close to the falsehoods of MS, I'm sorry, of Fox News is MSNBC, according to political facts. And the worst is Rachel Maddow. Uh, and yes, the corporate ownership uh, is a huge problem. A friend of mine used to teach at RPI a course on how to read the New York Times to learn the truth. One quick hint, start from the back. The stuff at the bottom is the most important um, in the, um, the, the, the New York Times. And then this idea that the media is objective is why they have been absolutely horrible on climate change. Because there is no debate among scientists and the fact that the media gives half the time to climate deniers is a distortion of truth. But you can listen to what Paul feels at Telling the Truth, 2002, Friday, October 28th, 2022. Um, and you can check out New York NYS Writers Institute.org for more information. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunley, our engineer tonight, Sina Basila Hickey, who also contributed many of the uh, segments tonight. Thank you, Sina, for all your work. And we also certainly want to thank Sally uh, and all the volunteers who made this episode possible. And thank you, Mark. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.